0: Hello and welcome to Asia Stream, where we track, report and analyze the issues and interests of the world's largest region. I am Waj Khan, Nik Asia's digital editor here in New York City. Today's episode, Asia's balancing act with Russia. Is Russia getting isolated? That's what those who are shaping the US and Europe's relationship with Moscow have been pushing for since Vladimir Putin decided to invade Ukraine almost seven months ago. Sanctions have cut Moscow off from much of the international financial system and dramatically lowered consumption of Russian oil in much of the West and Japan. But Russia isn't down and out. In fact, depending on which country you analyze, Russia is not at all a pariah and is very much in business with many Asian countries. Just today, Thursday, September 15. Chinese President Xi Jinping, on his first international trip since the COVID outbreak, met Putin in Samarkand, Uzbekistan. This isn't surprising. China has stood behind Putin, if not in an all-out alliance, then with serious diplomatic support since the war began. Plus, as they've said themselves, China and Russia are friends without limits. Their words, not mine. (laughs) But Putin's not just counting on China as an Asian pal. In fact, Russia continues to maintain, even bolster its relationship with other authoritarian countries like Iran, North Korea and Myanmar. On the face of it, that makes sense. Authoritarian states like authoritarian states. That's just how things work in modern geopolitics. But today's show isn't about the obvious. It's about the outliers. It's about those Asian countries that continue to work and trade and deal with Russia despite their supposed commitment to a values and rules based international order. Why are these countries, which feature robust democracies like India, which is supposed to be a friend of the West, opting for this route? What is holding these countries back from cutting off ties with Moscow? Is it weapons, oil, policy, or just old habits from the Cold War? That is what is on the stream today, Asia's balancing act with Russia. We'll first discuss India with the Stimson Center's Akriti Vasudeva and then Southeast Asia with Josh Galantzik at the Council on Foreign Relations. Strap those boots on. It's time to walk that diplomatic tightrope. You're listening to The Sound of Asia, streaming in your ear. From Nikkei Asia, this is Asia Stream.
1: A reminder that Nikkei Asia is currently offering an exclusive discount for our podcast listeners. Get three months of our award-winning coverage for just $9. To redeem, just click the link in the episode description.
0: That is the sound of fanfare that welcomes Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin to Uzbekistan today. Those two are meeting in what is their first huddle since the war in Ukraine began. The forum is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, a multilateral group that started in the 1990s as a talking shop for China, Russia, and the ex-Soviet states, but which has expanded to include India, Pakistan, and even Iran, which signed on as an official member today. So, the SCO, which is seen as a China and Russia-led bloc, and by some in Washington, as an anti-Western China and Russia-led bloc, continues to expand. Also expanding are Russia's ties with certain Asian countries. Trade with China is up, way up, almost by a quarter compared to last year's $140 which in itself was a record. China is also buying over a million barrels of Russian oil a day. While it's not selling weapons to Putin, that would be a breach of Western sanctions, it is helping shore up the losses Russia's economy is facing due to those sanctions. And even as Putin's forces have been routed from Northeastern Ukraine, she seems to have doubled down, saying in Samarkand that China and Russia are both great powers and continue to play a leading role and to inject stability into the turbulent world. But is that really surprising? She runs the world's largest authoritarian state. He and Putin have similar worldviews about the West. So China's still for Russia, abstentions at the UN, public meetings with Putin, calling him an old friend, and claiming that the Russia-China relationship has no limits, etc., are completely understandable. Then there's Iran. It didn't just join the SCO today, it's also been sending drones to Russia to use in Ukraine. The North Koreans have been bolstering their ties as well by supplying what Western intelligence says will be weapons, lots and lots of weapons, to Russia. But that's the bad boys club, right? It's not shocking that these regimes will stick together. That's why the junta in Myanmar is buying Russian weapons and oil too. But it's not just the brutal regimes aligning with Russia. There's an increasing roster of other Asian countries that continue to deal with Moscow, almost as though the state of the world is Business as usual. First up, India.
2: Now, India has been reluctant to criticize Russia and its invasion of Ukraine. With demand for
1: Russian oil falling, India was able to obtain a huge discount. It has increased its oil imports from Russia substantially since the invasion of Ukraine.
3: Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has said his country appreciates India for not taking, a quote, one-sided view of the situation in Ukraine.
0: India is a strategic partner of the U.S. India is a member of the Quad, the powerful new partnership for Indo-Pacific security that includes Japan, Australia, and U.S., all democracies. In fact, India is the world's largest democracy. Moreover, India has got 50,000 troops in an eyeball-to-eyeball face-off with China in the Himalayas. For that, and all of the above reasons, India is seen by the West as a, quote, natural counterweight to China. And yet, India continues to buy weapons from Russia. Just earlier this week, the Russians confirmed that they delivered a very sophisticated $4 billion missile system to Delhi. Besides continuing to be Russia's largest arms buyer, the Indians also continue to buy Russian oil. Lots and lots of it. Earlier this year, before the war, the Indians bought less than 33,000 barrels per day from the Russians. Today, they buy more than a million while the friends and partners in the U.S. and Europe ban Russian oil imports and implement price gaps, the Indians have actually increased their purchases to more than 30 times to what it was before the war started. This weakens Western sanctions and bolsters Russia's economy, but the Indians take advantage of the low price, fight inflation at home, and make a killing exporting gasoline products. Russia sees this pragmatic balancing act and capitalizes on it with the right incentives. Today, at the SEO, Putin dangled gas and humanitarian aid to the energy-strapped and flood-affected Pakistanis, who have, after decades of tensions, started warming to Russia. To the Vietnamese, the Russians are offering wheat shipments, which start next week. To the Thai, Russia is offering tourism. That's why Bangkok just announced that it's letting the Russian airline Aeroflot resume operations in that country. And Putin seems to have made an impression with the Indonesians as well, because he's still on President Jokowi's guest list for the G20 summit later this year, despite noises from the White House to kick Russia out of the G20 group. And by the way, Jokowi just announced that he's probably going to be purchasing Russian oil as well. This contradiction by Asian democracies poses many questions. And frankly, I can't deal with all of them alone. So here to co-pilot with me is Asia Stream correspondent, Monica Hunter-Hart. Hi, Monica. Hey, Waj. So I know you're recently back from Turkey, where you reported on President Erdogan conducting his own balancing act, dealing with both Kiev and Moscow, and while increasing Turkey's influence. So do you see shades of that in the rest of Asia?
2: Kind of, Waj. Yeah, so Turkey, just as we discussed two weeks ago, did condemn the Russian invasion and is selling drones to Ukraine, but hasn't joined Russian sanctions. And that has allowed Turkey to increase its own bargaining power and, yeah, hold talks with both Kyiv and Moscow. And a lot of Asia is aiming at a similar strategy, even as they're using different tactics. And that's basically not picking sides. I have some larger questions about that approach, though. I mean, it seems like countries want to have it both ways. Hmm. They don't want to alienate Moscow and want to take advantage of cheap energy, but they also don't want to be seen as supporting Moscow and want to maintain good relations with the West. Right. I understand the benefits of towing the line from a self-interest perspective, but the goals really seem at odds to me. I mean, you can't really claim to be neutral in this conflict if you're buying goods from Russia right now. At the same time, there's also really no way to be neutral here. It's a globalized world. If you stop dealing with Russia, you're seen as taking sides with Ukraine. If you keep doing what you've always done with Russia, you're seen as taking sides with Russia. It's a bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't.
0: Okay, so this have-it-both-ways type of diplomacy, which on the one hand can be seen as very savvy, but is also criticized to be against a values-and-rules-based order, is epitomized by the world's largest democracy, the world's fastest-growing economy, Asia's second-largest country, and one of my favorite subjects, India. And here to explain India's balancing act with Russia is Akriti Vasudeva a fellow at the Stimson Center and the editor-at-large of South Asian Voices. Akriti, welcome to Asia Stream.
4: Thank you so much.
0: All right, so let's start by getting your quick first take about this. Most Asian democracies are firmly in the Western camp when it comes to Russia. Japan, for example, is leading the way, sending aid to Ukraine, and firmly following the sanctions regime, even at the risk of soaring energy costs. Singapore, even though it's tiny, has made its position clear against Russia. But India stands out and has been aligning itself more closely with Russia since the war began. That's the broad narrative. What do you think of that perspective? Do you agree?
4: Um, You know, it's, it's much more nuanced than that. And I will say that India has actually condemned Russian actions without actually saying Russia. So if you look at uh, statements that India has made regarding the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, you know, at the UN, at different fora, its consistent argument has been that it is actually supportive of uh, territorial integrity and sovereignty of all states. And in this situation, that obviously means Ukraine. And it has been calling for uh, cessation of violence and direct dialogue between both countries. In fact, I think Prime Minister Modi is one of the only leaders who's actually spoken to both Uh, Putin and Zelensky, and he's done that multiple times, and he's actually uh, urged both of them to have a direct dialogue between each other. So I'm not sure, even though that's coming out so much in statements. I will also say that you know India has actually sent a significant amount of humanitarian assistance to Ukraine in this time, uh, multiple consignments of you know uh, medicines, etc. That again may not be something that's coming out in the narrative. And you know the, the thing to understand here is that India is really in a bind. If you look at uh, India's dependence on uh, Russian weapon systems historically, uh, in its arsenal, there are about 85% of systems that are of Soviet or Russian origin. Um, And so, you know, this is a difficult situation. If India comes out too strongly and says something, um, you know, really against Russia, it's possible that Russia might not actually supply some immediate defense uh, articles that India might need. And this is a really difficult situation when, you know, India and China are currently in a standoff. So there's that constraint. And in the beginning of the crisis, it was also the fact that there were about 22,000 Indian students uh, in Ukraine, and they had to make sure to get those uh, students out.
2: Yeah, so you've been using this word constraints a lot, and we want to kind of zero in on some of those constraints a bit more, particularly this arguably most important one, weapons. So about 85 percent of India's military equipment is from Russia. Clearly, that's a motivating factor here. So we're just wondering what you think about, I mean, does it make sense for India to actually be this dependent on Russian weapons at this point in history? I mean, number one, Russian weapons aren't that impressive. And number two, it's just not a good look right now to be a client of Russia's. So why is India still so dependent here?
4: So, you know, this is the legacy of the Cold War. Um, the India-Russia military relationship has actually, you know, existed since the Soviet Union, which is, um, and the relationship, I think, is from the 50s and 60s. And at that time, um, India actually wasn't able to get a lot of advanced technology from the West because it was just simply refused that technology. And that's why it has a lot of, you know, Russian systems that it has. It has, uh, you know, aircraft. It actually has even, uh, at that time, what was considered advanced technology, like, uh, you know, um, nuclear submarines and um, aircraft carriers that are of Russian origin, because no one else was providing that to India at the time. Uh, the other, uh, you know, thing to think about is, since the '90s, since the end of the Cold War, India actually has been diversifying away from Russia, because you know, the same thing that you said, India realized that this dependence is actually not good, and especially, you know, during that period of the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, India actually had to scramble for spare parts. I mean, there are stories of Indian officials going with, you know, bags of money to all of these countries that were newly liberated um, and trying to source sort of spare parts from, from these places where uh, equipment was being made. So since then, they have been aware of the fact that you can't be so dependent on any one country. And if you actually look at, um, you know, other countries that have are now part of India's arsenal, that that you know, their share has actually grown a lot lot in the last 20 to 25 years. So whether you think about France or Israel, definitely the United States as well. So sometimes this number of, you know, 85% might be a misnomer, because we're talking about sort of the life cycle, we're talking about the entire arsenal. But if you look at the last 10, 15 years, it's a much more sort of, there are other Western partners that are much more uh, part of India's India's arsenal. Um, But, you know, like, I, I wanted to say that, This conversation has been going on for a long time. It actually has preceded the the Russian invasion of Ukraine. India has been aware of these constraints for a long time. Um, And I think this situation is actually accelerating some of the changes that India wants to make here. So um, there has been a huge conversation in India about what is called Atmaniripata, which is self-reliance, indigenization of uh, defense uh, equipment and wanting to make uh, weapons at home, uh, wanting to work with foreign vendors and partners who will produce in India, And that is really getting getting a fillip in the last two to three years. Uh, but I will say, you know, I, I, I do agree with you that the Russian relationship is, is right now primarily about defense. It has been for a long time, but it, it's not that there hasn't been a political relationship between the two countries. There is uh, definitely a, a, a lot of comfort in India dealing with Russia. Um, you know, you had a, a lot of Indian students, especially in the 80s, who studied in Russia there is, um, there is, or so there was appease, appeal, uh, sort of the appeal of socialism, uh, and Indian uh, political leaders were, you know, fascinated by uh, Russia and, and sort of, um, you know, had um, a lot of these interactions as well. So I won't say that there isn't really maybe an old kind of relic of affinity towards Russia as well. That sometimes becomes a political question uh, in in the relationship. So even if you are trying to move away from Russia in India, sometimes. Um, you know, I have heard analysts from Delhi say that that's a marker of sort of Indian independence or strategic autonomy, that if India is moving, if it has partnerships with the West, it also needs to have a little bit of relationship with Russia, because otherwise it seems like it's completely putting all its eggs in the Western basket. So there are those discussions as well. I, I won't you know, deny that.
0: Right. So there is a bit of a, a, a pro-Russia bias while, of course, the Indian DNA suggests strategic autonomy uh, first and last.
4: I think it's a generational difference. I, I will honestly say. I think the you know the people who in the Ministry of Defense or the Ministry of External Affairs in India that worked on Russia for a long period of time obviously have those relationships and networks. but those who are now, you know part of the younger generation have studied in the us have much more understanding of the us and have seen um, you know, um, a lot of issues in the India Russia relationship, such as uh, the cost overruns, the delays, the the faulty equipment. Um, you know, there was a series of crashes of MiG aircraft in India in the two- early two thousands, uh, late two thousands, which again did not, uh, you know, go down well. So there's there's much more. Um, I think. Uh, it, it's much, It's seen there's sort of a reluctance to continue to have the same uh, relationship with Russia that India did before, especially in the younger generation. And and I think, you know, from sort of a politi- political and strategic point of view, from a values point of view, uh, U.S. and India are much more aligned than Russia and India.
2: You referenced strategic autonomy. So that is a framework that a lot of people are using right now to understand what India is doing strategically when it comes to the Russia-Ukraine Ukraine war. Um, so just a little background for listeners India was, in the 60s, a leader of this so-called strategic autonomy, um, also called non-alignment movement. It was basically uh, formerly colonized powers deciding to optimize their power by declining to pick sides during the Cold War. So is that actually the way to understand what India is doing right now? You pointed out in a smart Twitter thread earlier this week that it might be a bit more complicated. So please explain.
4: I think my point was that non-alignment has traditionally been understood as an anti-Western um, ideology. It's because a lot of the countries that adopted the Non-Aligned Movement uh, were post-colonial societies, and so their sort of post-colonial sentiments then became anti-Western sentiments, and that was definitely true, uh, you know, for a lot of the countries in that period. Uh, but I think that situation has changed now. So. From India's point of view, um, you know, of course, India and the Soviet Union um, had a really strong relationship during the Cold War. And, you know, uh, you could also say that India tilted towards the Soviet Union in the sort of 70s and 80s period. There was a treaty of friendship that was signed between India and the Soviet Union. Um, So again, you know, if it was really non-aligned, how did that come come about? Also, if you think too earlier... India and the U.S. you know briefly aligned for a period around the 1962 war between India and China. In the U.S., provided a lot of sort of support and uh, intelligence to India at the time, and a lot of kind of um, activities that the two countries did together. Um, So you know the 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 thinking in India was essentially that the reason why that movement appealed to the country at the moment, uh, at that moment, was because it was just coming out of. Uh, you know, colonialism, Uh, it was coming out of the British having ruled India for 200 years and it wanted independence in its decision making, it wanted autonomy in its decision making. Um, And, you know, that is to an extent still the case. But if you are thinking about non-alignment as sort of an anti-Western sentiment, that isn't true of India at all. I mean, if you think about the fact uh, that India's strongest strategic partners right now are all Western countries, whether that's the US, Japan, Australia. Uh, France. Um, And it has actually, uh, you know, done a lot of things within the Quad and in other fora that um, are aligning uh, the values and interests of those countries share.
2: Noted. Uh, Let's move on to the other major factor here, the oil of it all. Oil has been called the currency of the war. So, of course, before this conflict, much of the world was dependent on Russia for energy. Now the West is refusing to buy it, but the impact of their sanctions on Russia is lessened because many other countries are still buying it, most significantly China and India. So, tell us about what India has been doing regarding Russian oil since the war began and what that has meant for both the Indian and the Russian economies.
4: Yeah, so I know, you know, oil has become sort of this big issue, uh, and it's it's kind of seen as the signal of uh, Indian support for russia but let me just you know provide a little bit of context if you just look at uh, the numbers 85% of its total oil requirements needs to come from imports um and so this number was about 85.5% in the 21 to 22 period and so any increase in oil prices is really going to impact india very hard its economy very hard especially as you're coming out of uh you know the covid-19 pandemic so the fact that russia is providing Uh, Oil at pretty discounted rates is something that India has to kind of go in for because that, um, you know, in the current situation that we're in, in terms of inflation, in terms of, you know, rising insecurity, in terms of energy and uh, et cetera, um, the current sort of situation that they're in, they need to prioritize their domestic uh, situation first before they would consider, um, you know, stopping oil imports from Russia. Although I know that there are some conversations about, you know, price caps uh, on imports and I don't think India's really made a statement on it so far. So we'll we'll watch how the situation is going. Uh, but that's currently what I understand of what's happening.
0: The Ukrainian foreign minister, just a few days ago, um, he's a quite a colourful character. Uh, he comes in and says to India directly that, "Oh, India, you're not buying Russian oil. You're paying for Ukrainian blood," and that triggered on Twitter in uh, in Washington, in the media elsewhere. Um, a bit of a a bit of a storm for a minute about the values based proposition here. Uh, Mr. Modi has uh, to control inflation. I get it. You need cheap in you need cheap Russian oil. I get it. There's clearly domestic factors at play here, which aren't discussed in places like Washington. Uh, elections are approaching. Um, India has as many inflation problems as anybody else, but is fighting them better. We get that. But again, with the values-based proposition here, that this is India we're talking about. This isn't China. Um, this isn't uh, Vietnam. This isn't uh, Myanmar. Um, how does India explain that to Washington and to itself, more importantly?
4: So, I mean, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who works in the, in, in the Ministry of External Affairs or in the government of India, but I assume the response to that would be, are those questions also being asked? Of you know European leaders, of Japanese leaders who are also buying large amounts of, of Russian oil, and does that then put uh, you know their values uh, against the values of the US or, or other partners? I I do recognize and that that this is in some ways becomes a question of values versus interests. I have myself asked uh, these question uh, questions of analysts in India about what does it say uh, about you know Indian values uh, or you know India standing with the West in terms of uh, wanting a rules-based order uh, and, you know, wanting uh, to support territorial sovereignty and integrity, uh, that uh, you still continue to, um, you know, not condemn Russia publicly or try to um, have sort of more significant ways of reducing ties. And I think, um, you know, the, the question is, India is trying to do the best of a really hard situation. Um, like I said, you know, I we, we see sort of what the decisions are on, on the price cap um, situation in the next few days. It, in the meantime, India is actually, you know, continuously engaging with its um, partners in the West. It just had the U.S.-India 2 plus 2 intercessional. They also did a maritime dialogue. They're continuing to work on, um, you know, the China challenge side of things. Um, you mentioned the Quad. Um, There are multiple, you know, multilateral exercises that India is participating in with quad members. We just saw the Pitch Black exercise that happened uh, in Australia. India is also going for uh, the Kakadu exercise also in Australia by the the Navy. So, you know, those sort of values of, um, you know, wanting to um, seek interoperability, wanting to stand against coercion, wanting to work on, you know, Indo-Pacific stability is still going on while it's trying to wrestle with uh, this kind of difficult situation, and in some ways, um, you know, India has to kind of navigate this. It has to make sure that this situation doesn't impact its budget and its economic capabilities, such that it won't be able to provide the security needs that it has. It has to think about the long term of how much money, uh, you know, it would spend on, you know, buying oil from other sources versus the current sources that are available, because then that impacts its ability to. Um, you know, to buy the weapons that it needs against China to to actually invest the resources that it needs in the Indo-Pacific. So it's all, you know, it's all a question of balancing those various interests.
0: While this diplomatic tightrope, which you've you've drawn out, uh, while this tightrope act continues and continues uh, successfully so far, Do you see any limitations? Is there going to be some sort of a tipping point when someone in Washington is going to say, all right, enough? Or does India have the clout and the diplomatic muscle to keep on pulling this off indefinitely?
4: I mean, I don't think it's fair to say. I think, you know, a lot of countries have done uh, something similar to India in terms of, you know, buying cheap oil from Russia. I would imagine that the logic is you, you are expecting there to be an interruption in supply, down the road and so you have to make the most of the situation that currently exists and i think that's what will explain the action of most of the countries that have done that um i also think that you know because there aren't sanctions from importing oil from russia at the moment uh you know that's sort of been the case it is uh it's not the same thing as uh, you know other uh, kind of types of activities where sanctions are um in place I personally think you know there has been sort of an evolution in the US position on this there was much more rancor and disappointment and um, you know concerns on the US side in probably the early part of the year we also saw some US officials you know make comments in India when they visited about um, India importing oil from Russia, but I I, I remember think-
0: India made comments right back. Uh, uh, Foreign Minister Jaswant was very clear. He's like, why don't you go ask this question to your European friends? But but Akriti, Europe has weaned down. It's put price caps on Russian oil. Most European countries are cut off now from Russian oil. I mean, it they, it wasn't overnight, but it's clearly in play. It's the opposite case uh, with China and India in terms of numbers. That's what I'm trying to um, get to the bottom of um, right now with this. And again, with China, it makes sense. But with India, it's frankly a little disappointing for those who believe in the as far as democracy and ideals and a values-based order uh, is concerned?
4: I think we'll, we'll probably see a decision on that in the next few days. And I, uh, I'm i really not an expert on oil, so I won't be comfortable commenting on it. But, uh, you know, let's see what, what happens in that realm. But I do think uh, if you just look at sort of the US-India angle of this and how they've navigated the situation, my understanding is that this also came up in the uh you know us india um uh, conversations that happened in delhi and um it seems like there are you know sort of candid frank conversations happening on this i i don't have much more to say on how uh this
2: will pan out in in the next few weeks
0: okay thank you that gives me some closure akriti thank you
2: yeah um this is all really helpful in terms of understanding the strategy that the indian government is most likely coming at this with right now, um, I'm still curious, you know, how might this strategy in some ways backfire? You know, you've, yeah, you've explained the ways in which it's really helpful for India and completely in line with its interests. But surely there are ways that it's not as much. For example, um, I wonder if this might have the effect of kind of undermining India's moral authority when it comes to territorial integrity disputes, um, which it really needs, especially when it comes to something like, you know, the border dispute with China up in the Himalayas? Um, Or could this have consequences in terms of lessening support from U.S. lawmakers? Um, Are any of those genuine things that India should be concerned about here?
4: Those have been concerns uh, that have been raised. I mean, I myself have, you know, written a piece on this and, you know, asked India to be sort of asked... uh, Delhi to consider being more, um, you know, publicly uh, expressing sort of its anger and disappointment with Russian actions, because yes, you know, if you are, if India wants to take up sort of, you know, regional and eventually global leadership, um, and other smaller countries, particularly in the, you know, Southern Asia region are looking at it, um, and seeing it as a country that will sort of support it against uh, Chinese actions, um, they do need to see sort of a more vocal statement. Like I said, you know, India has actually, uh, supported uh, Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty, um, but, you know, not using Russia in those statements does kind of take the sting away from that. Um, and, but I will say, you know, Russia has been an issue in the U.S. relationship for a long time. This is actually not new. I mean, when I moved to, you know, D.C. 10 years ago, it was still an issue and it's still an issue. But I think what has happened over the last few years is that both sides have actually figured out a way to manage um, this challenge, and that has happened because of, you know U.S. and India engage much more on defense. They engage much more on strategy. They have conversations, um, and you know, like I said, because the share of, of U.S. systems in India's arsenal is also increasing. But I, I do uh, think that you know this was a challenge, and in some ways continues to be a challenge for the U.S. India relationship. For the most part, you know, they've done well in, in dealing with it. And there hasn't really been a fallout in the broader relationship or other areas. But it is still going to be a difficult situation to navigate. Um, but I will say it's, it's not new.
0: So, Akriti, to wrap things up, the um, larger argument that a lot of people are making, um, especially in context of the last few months, uh Different people in Washington, elsewhere, and other Western capitals have, since the non-aligned movement, have criticised India uh, for either tilting towards Russia or doing its own thing. That's that's past. But currently, from your analysis and others, um, some people may draw the conclusion that while we understand the dependencies India finds itself in and the tough spots where it finds itself in, as far as the Chinese go as well, not just the Russians. It seems that India has made it a diplomatic art form to uh, talk from both sides of its mouth. Uh, we're seeing that it's a very pro-Western uh, member of the Quad, strategic partner of these United States, etc. It's in all the right forums. It's at the G7. It's at all the right clubs. It has all the right memberships. It's gone to the. It's going to the right schools, so to say. And yet, um, it continues to do the dirty business with some dirty people, because uh, that's the nature of the beast. Um, this puts people at unease when it comes to looking at India as a reliable partner. Should they be uneasy, or is this just the way India always done business, for its, for its own self first, and then the West later?
4: I am not sure why the dependability argument comes into question here. I mean, if you look at uh, India's relationships with the US, Australia, Japan, and France, since I would say like the 2005 to 2022 period, the graph has only gone up. Um, if you think about uh, the kinds of things that, you know, India's doing with uh, a lot of these countries now, they would have been unimaginable in terms of, you know, a a closeness a strategic or interoperability perspective Um, 15 years ago or 20 years ago. The fact that India, um, you know, Indian aircraft are now being uh, refueled air to air by Australian um, aircraft or, or, you know, French aircraft, that kind of kind of sophisticated interoperability India doesn't have with countries like, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's different in sort of the Russia-India relationship, but I, I don't think they're focusing on interoperability in the same sense. The focus uh, in with these countries is uh, for, on a China contingency, on thinking about the Indo-Pacific. And I think the Russia uh, thing, sort of the aspect of that is going to be difficult, but it is on, um, it's something that is reducing. I think if you think about sort of the, the trajectory of the relationship as well, uh, Russia and India, they're only really link is defense. It's not a broad-based relationship. There isn't really much on the economic side. There has been discussion of that a little bit, but uh, we don't really know how many avenues there are for that. But if you look at the U.S.-India relationship, it's truly a broad-based relationship. There's intelligence sharing. There is conversation on supply chains. There's people-to-people ties. There's education. There's health cooperation. There's space cooperation now. uh, Defense and security, obviously. Um, And so if if you think in the long-term structurally uh, that is a relationship that is going to continue in the long term. And the Russia-India relationship is going to sort of, you know, uh, it's going to wane over time. And I think that's the uh, messaging that, you know, at least Delhi would provide uh, for why. So I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it's a dependability question because it has been clear for some time the direction in which India is is trying to go.
0: Akriti Vasudeva, I am, I am enlightened. Thank you.
4: Thank you
0: so much. Now, let's pivot across the Bay of Bengal to Southeast Asia and its balancing act regarding the Russia-Ukraine war. For that, we are joined by Josh Galanzik, Senior Fellow for Southeast Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations. Josh, welcome to the show.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: All right, Josh, talk to us about the current state of the Russia-Southeast Asia relationship. Uh, In the context of the Russia-Ukraine war which countries are edging closer to Russia right now versus which countries are maintaining a sort of a a safe distance?
5: Well, the Myanmar junta regime is definitely edging much closer to Russia. Russia has been one of their two biggest patrons since they took power in a coup in early 2021. Um, Russia's hosted the junta leader and supplied them with weapons when they needed them with basically no strings attached the other countries in the region have tried to play some sort of balancing game they're obviously under a lot of pressure from the us and other major democracies japan australia the european union and others to take a tough line against russia so some of them have taken a tougher line thailand voted on the un resolution to condemn russia's invasion of ukraine thailand voted yes but Laos and v- Vietnam abstained. Laos and Vietnam are sort of trying to have it both ways. They they want to continue to have their relationship with Russia, particularly arms sales. And for Laos now, Laos is in desperate financial straits. They have a huge debt crisis and they're unable to meet their external payments probably. And they have a huge economic crisis. There's people lined up at gas stations for miles. So Laos needs Russian oil. Um, the toughest approach by far with no comparison at all is Singapore, which has basically joined the, the measures of the of the European Union, the US, Japan, South Korea, and other democratic countries. Singapore is imposing sanctions on Russia similar to those of the ones imposed by those other countries but yeah they, they've taken the hardest the toughest stance by far with no comparison and and i think part of the reason is they're a tiny tiny country although they don't have any active conflicts they're always worried that malaysia indonesia which are large countries are around them and they have a parent kind of paranoia that at some point indonesia or malaysia is going to invade them and take over which was actually an po- actual possibility back in the 60s but is it's no longer a possibility but anyway i think that for singapore both their close relationships with the us and japan and other democratic countries plus this feeling that they had to take a stand against bullying small countries has made them sympathetic to the ukrainian cause as well as well they're not going to say it out- outright pretty sympathetic to taiwan
0: And what do the pro-Ukraine powers think about all of that? Is this what they basically expected? Are they pushing back? Myanmar is an outlier.
5: It's a brutal military junta has ruled the country since 1962, essentially. There are very few military regimes left in the world. Myanmar is one of them, unfortunately. Um, So... The fact that they are allied with a brutal regime in Russia is not surprising. The U.S. and other democratic powers understand that why Laos and Vietnam would abstain. They certainly understand and they're not going to really care. Of course, they'd like as many votes as they want, as they can get. But they're not going to be upset that a country, a tiny country, one of the poorest countries in Asia, in economic crisis... Um, in debt crisis, people don't have enough to eat. They're not going to come down on them for buying some r- oil from Russia and then abstaining. It would just look bullying and harsh. Um, it would be a different thing if France was abstaining, saying they, or Germany saying they were abstaining because they needed the Russian oil. You'd be talking about a different situation, but this is a, a tiny, very, very poor country where they desperately need to dig themselves a hole. You know, I think with Vietnam, the U.S. has pushed pretty pretty hard, and other countries have pushed pretty hard. You know, I, I think on this issue, there is an understanding among many of these democracies that there are historical ties. The Soviet Union came to Vietnam's need when no one else would, and Vietnam's whole military platform is based on Russian arms. Josh, one
0: narrative we keep on hearing is that Southeast Asia is generally deepening its ties to Russia. What do you think about that perspective?
5: They're not necessarily deepening. Moscow has had these ties with Southeast Asia for for decades. They've been the biggest arms supplier to many of these Southeast Asian countries for years. This isn't necessarily some deepening. It's just that no one cared in the past that they were the biggest arms supplier to Vietnam. I mean, people cared, but not that much. But these aren't deepening ties, except to Myanmar. That's the only, only place where it's a deepening tie. But they've been selling arms to Indonesia and Vietnam for years. They're, they're the biggest arms supplier in Southeast Asia and have been for several years. None of these countries, except for possibly Vietnam, have a warm view of Russia no one has a warm view of russia vietnam is a specific case because people are taught that russia came to their soviet union came to their aid in that but just because putin says we're pivoting to asia doesn't mean anything first of all he said that for years and nothing has come with it look at putin's look at russia's goods trades other than arms and oil with any of these countries and you'll see it's minuscule None of these countries are going to significantly back Russia in the world stage other than Myanmar. They have no interest in doing that. Their primary interest is keeping their heads down about this and worrying about the future of U.S.-China relations and how they're going to navigate them.
0: So so premised on that then, how do we understand Vietnam agreeing to buy more wheat, or Thailand saying it's going to increase international trade. How do we how do we grasp those?
5: Vietnam has had a warm relationship with Russia for years. They probably need more wheat, and they're not getting the wheat, and so they want to buy more wheat. Just because the Thai government says something doesn't mean much. The Thai government says stuff all the time. Every time they talk to any major power, they come up with some glorious statement. But Thailand, look, Thailand is not going to become some close ally or friend of Russia's. Thailand is a U.S. treaty ally, and Russia has nothing to offer other than oil and arms. There's nothing else. These countries just want to keep their head down, not think about this as much as possible. They're not going to become more actively involved in supporting Russia In no way is that going to happen. My basic take is these countries in Southeast Asia, except for Myanmar, are mostly just trying to keep their head down.
0: Right. Got it. Josh Kolanzik, Senior Fellow for Southeast Asia at the Council of Foreign Relations. Thank you, Josh. Thank you for your time. Take care. We now go to Alice French, our Deputy Big Story Editor, for this week's Tokyo Dispatch. Our subject, the floods in Pakistan. The devastating natural disaster, the worst in Pakistan's history, is prompting debates around who, if anyone, should pay for the consequences of climate change, particularly when it is low-carbon-emitting countries from the global south, like Pakistan, who often end up bearing the brunt of the world's most extreme weather. Here's Alice to tell us more.
1: Konnichiwa. And welcome to the Tokyo Dispatch, where I send regular updates from the narrow streets and neon lights of Tokyo, home to Nikkei HQ and hub for our East Asia coverage. Our big story this week came from our contributor in Pakistan, Adnan Amir, who recently made a trip to the area's worst hit by last month's flash floods. Unprecedented levels of rainfall that started in July have left 1.7 million homes destroyed by floodwater and an estimated 1,400 Pakistanis dead. A story we published on Tuesday also revealed that around 650,000 pregnant Pakistani women have been left in crisis, unable to access healthcare because of the floods. The floods also wiped out nearly 20% of Pakistan's cultivated cropland, according to the United Nations World Food Programme, which puts the country at dire risk of an impending food crisis. Adnan's story is full of sobering accounts from flood victims across Pakistan. One interviewee said that he had lost all of his material possessions, while another told Adnan she had lost all contact with her children and husband and has no idea whether they are safe or not. I caught up with Adnan to hear more about the atmosphere on the ground.
3: If you go there, you will see like still they they give a look that they have been affected by a disaster recently. And the mood among people was like they seemed very frustrated, helpless. And the community centre where I was uh, and there were some uh, volunteer uh, organizations and they were distributing food packets and water bottles because the flood has not only devastated their homes but the entire water supply system has been affected. So the drinking water shortage is a huge problem. So they were distributing bottled water. In the case of Noshera, they were displaced for like four or five days. Then they returned to their homes because government said that the water has receded. You should go to their homes. But the thing is that the homes like they don't uh, are not not um, not more proper homes. The walls have fallen down. The furniture was soaked by water. So so they are homes for the name only. And uh, the government has like uh, uh, completely shut down all the camps and sent them back there. So now they are just uh, struggling to survive there.
1: As well as documenting the devastation caused by the floods, Adnan's story addressed the pressing issue of climate justice, which is the idea that rich, carbon-emitting countries, such as the US have a responsibility to pay reparations to developing countries which historically have emitted less carbon and yet find themselves most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. Adnan spoke to a range of climate scientists and researchers who were pretty much unanimous in their opinion that the floods in Pakistan were brought on by global warming. But they had differing opinions on whether seeking reparations from rich countries was the most appropriate way forward. Here's Adnan with more details.
3: So basically the thing is that, uh, like the experts said that to link one event to a climate change, it like it's not easy, it takes time, it takes a lot of research. So it's too early to say that. But like in, in the entire context and everything, they said that they are quite sure that the irregular patterns of rainfall and the monsoon and everything did, did occur due to the climate change. So, so I think like in the, in the broader picture, there is no denying of the fact that this happened due to climate change and most of the experts, they agree with it. The government of Pakistan is that officially asked for reparations. The federal minister for climate change. She said that in response to a question um, at a seminar or something. So, so that's not like an official version of. But there is this debate of reparations, and even the UN Secretary generally said that whatever is happening in Pakistan due to climate change is something that Pakistan is not responsible of, and uh, because the historic carbon emissions of Pakistan uh, since 1959 are just 0.4 percent. So, so, so Pakistan's contribution is very little, and. uh, consequences of, uh, of the negative impact that the Pakistan is facing is a lot. So I think it has generated a debate and uh, like I have mentioned in the story, like one of the experts, he said that he suggests that like the next general assembly session, Pakistan should ask for a like a separate meeting on this topic and they should formally take this up. But again, the, the Western countries, the biggest polluters, like they they agree and they sympathize, but they are not ready to commit because if they do, then. They have to pay a lot of money. I think the expert said that if Pakistan makes this demand alone, it will uh, carry no weight. So what it should do is should just group with all these other countries, underdeveloping countries who are not bigger emitters but who are the victims, and with, together they can like ask for it. But again, like like there is no like we can see there is a moral case for it, but not a legal. So that's why it would be really hard to to force the hand of the, the developed countries who are also uh, big carbon emitters.
1: Thanks very much to Adnan for taking the time to speak to me about this week's story. The photos of acres and acres of land submerged in floodwater across Pakistan, several of which are included in his piece, are a very real reminder of the immediate risks climate change poses to our planet. The debate around climate justice is sure to only heat up further as extreme weather and natural disasters become more commonplace. Stay tuned to the Nikkei Asia website to follow this topic as it unfolds. This has been Alice French with the Tokyo Dispatch for Asia Stream.
0: That's it for Asia Stream this week. As always, I encourage you to head to Nikkei Asia at asia.nikkei.com for more in-depth coverage of Asia's relationship to Russia and all things related to Asia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share, subscribe and leave us a review and hopefully a 5-star rating. And a last reminder that Nike Asia is currently offering an exclusive discount for our podcast listeners. To get the discount, click the link in the episode description. This episode was produced by Monica hunter Hart. I'm your host, Waj Khan. We'll stream again in two weeks when we'll keep walking together on this boulevard of broken streams. <laughs>